Do you struggle with concentration? Have you ever thought of your brain health long-term? Bomar Nutrition is revolutionizing the nootropic and cognitive health industry with sharp nootropic powder and patent-pending bright daily capsules, powered by Neurobloom. If you struggle with focusing, think of Sharp as brain food that supports concentration. Sharp works with your natural brain chemistry to provide a heightened sense of well-being that can delay cognitive decline and also increase mood. Bomar Sharp tastes amazing and comes in many different flavors, available in caffeinated and non-caffeinated versions. While Sharp is a short-term aid in cognitive health, think of Bright Daily Capsules as a way to improve overall brain health and prevent cognitive decline long-term. As we age, so does our brain. Supplementing with Bright has the potential to delay this aging process and helps your brain function optimally. Stay ahead of the curve and order yours today at bomarnutrition.com and save $5 off with code GENIUS5. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Ajmal Zamar. He's an assistant professor at uh, University of Louisville School of Medicine. He's uh, part of the Department of Neurological Surgery as well. And we're going to talk about uh, neurosurgery and, and understanding from his perspective of when life actually ends. So. Ajmal, thank you for coming. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, if you would, tell me a bit about your background and what got you into neurosurgery and then into uh, this aspect of it. Yes. Uh, so I was born in Afghanistan. I uh, moved to Germany when I was six years old. That's where I grew up and did my medical school. And then I moved to Switzerland to do a PhD in neuroscience after finishing medical school. And this is where really I... Uh, got fascinated about neuroscience and the brain. And uh, I wanted to go and apply the scientific knowledge I had learned and gained during my neuroscience PhD to help humans. And uh, the field that attracted me the most at the time was what we call functional neurosurgery, uh, where you basically try to stimulate and alter, modulate brain circuits uh, in order to treat diseases such like movement disorders, or Parkinson's disease, essential tremor, or pain, uh, epilepsy. Uh, so this is what I'm doing today. And this, this is how I got into this field. Okay. What about uh, part of the uh, your bio where it said uh, an understanding of when life ends? So, you know, hopefully very few or none of your surgeries end like that when the person passes. But um What's been your interaction with people that uh, that pass away? Well, it's I would say to me, this is the most difficult part of the surgery. Um, sometimes you have patients with brain tumors where a surgery goes fantastic and you do you know the best possible job. And then the pathology comes back and it's an incurable brain cancer. And unfortunately, there's nothing we can do. Um, then there's cases where a patient may have had a car crash or have been in other traumatic involvements and they come to us and it's too late and there's nothing we can do. 
So this is an unfortunate part of the job where as a neurosurgeon, you sometimes have to deal with these things and it doesn't get easier. No matter how long you're on the job, it's still the most difficult thing for me to go to a patient's family or the patient themselves and tell them this is where we're at. And unfortunately, the frontier of medicine is unable to do anything at where we're at and the patient is having a bad prognosis or is it a situation where there's nothing we can do from a surgical point of view and the patients unfortunately pass away. Do you have a different understanding than other people that would say, all right, they passed away, that's it. Is, you know, has, has your training or your observations told you that people may be deceased when they're not deceased or vice versa? I mean, what, you know, what's the significance of that uh, part of your bio? Uh, yes. So the research we're doing opened a few doors to the question of when we really die. To me, it's not really clear when we really die. In the traditional sense, we grow up with the notion that once the heart stops working, we die. That's is kind of what we see in movies. You see this flickering signal of the heart wave in Hollywood movies. And when that's flat, it means the respective person is dead. This is how we grew up as a child. And in medicine, you know, when the heart stops working, we pretty much think that's it. Our research has shown now that um, the, the brain keeps going for a little while after the heart stops working. And the question is, how long is that? The work that we recently published shows that the brain goes on for about 30 seconds after the heart stops working. I got a message from a colleague in Italy who's done experiments in monkeys, and he observed that the brain goes for two hours after heart stops working. So it is not really clear when we really die. Uh, if I had to pick a point, to me, that would be when we stop consciously perceiving. Um, and that is very difficult to answer. When is that? Maybe to give an example to uh, describe this better at the other side of life when we're born and uh, the neonate central nervous system has the cells firing and the circuits and the signals being active and you, you could measure those before six months but the neonate is only able to perceive pain after six months because the substrate to perceive pain is not there although the nerves fire and so on and so forth so if you were to transfer this analogy to the dying brain, we may record signals and circuits and nerve cells firing. To me, the biggest question is, until what point is the substrate present to consciously perceive? And after what point is that gone? And there's just cells firing that we're observing. That question is one that we're trying to tackle and answer, but who knows, maybe mankind will never be able to answer it. And it'll always be a little bit of a secret. We don't know. I don't know. Do you deal with patients that have near-death experiences that have reported to you, you know, after surgery that, you know, they had, they, they seem like they'd come to the point of death and come back or, I mean, what's the significance of your contemplation of, of when people actually die? And again, how has it affected you? How have you run into uh, things that have made you curious about it? I personally don't see patients who have had near-death experiences just because the nature of my job, being a neurosurgeon, we treat patients, they go into anesthesia, they wake up again. I haven't had anybody who would tell me 
among my patients that they've had a near-death experience. But uh, aside from myself and my own experience, there's a lot of testimonials out there of patients who have undergone that, and they pretty much, pretty consistently describe the same thing. Namely, they've had life recall, memory flashbacks. They explain they've seen light in front of their eyes. They experience an out-of-body experience, a meditative state. Those are pretty consistently descriptions of near-death experiences. And now we can't record the brain activity of these patients because we can't predict when this happens. You can't have everybody run around with with EEGs in their head uh, to know when they've had a near-death experience what happens in their brain. It's impossible. We also can't ask somebody who dies if they've had a near-death experience because they're gone. So it makes it virtually impossible to correlate somebody who undergoes near-death experience with a direct recording of their brain. We can't do that. So there's no causal evidence in that sense as to what neurophysiological signature is present in somebody who has near-death experiences. What tools do we have present to answer that question? It's only correlation. So uh, we provided a recording of a dying human brain, and we've had near-death survivors who experienced that when they think they pass away, what they, what they experienced. And what we have is we have recordings from healthy humans who were researched in moments when they experience those feelings that near-death survivors describe, namely memory recall, memory flashbacks, out-of-body experiences, meditative states. And so, for example, what research has been done is that you could have a healthy human being like you and me um, being attached to EEGs and show them memorable events of their life and then record the EEGs and see what happens. And there has been certain brainwave patterns that have been observed in these recordings of memorable life events. There's also studies that have been done in animals, most prominently a study by U.S. scientists and rats, where they have induced cardiac arrest and recorded from the brain of rats while they were undergoing death. Now, you also cannot ask a rat, have you had a near-death experience? So again, the direct evidence is missing, but it's correlative. What they have found is that very similar brainwave patterns as to those being observed in healthy human beings are also observed in rats at the time when they die. So our recording from a dying human brain shows very similar time patterns to these already known and present uh, scientific evidences. And that is really the um, striking similarity between our work that we have and the work that was present already, we see that these brainwave patterns are happening about 30 seconds before cardiac arrest and 30 seconds after. Um, okay, so are these patients that survived or ended up passing and they didn't come back? And the ones that survived, were you able to interview them and kind of ask them what they were experiencing maybe during the surgery? You mean the ones that survived but yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, right. The the recordings you have are they have people that there are people that survived, right? And if so, have you interviewed them and asked them about their experiences while they were going through what you observed? We do not have any recordings from a near death survivor. To my knowledge, nobody has that. 
Could could you do a um, a clinical trial where you have all the recordings set up for, let's say, every surgery you do? Again, it wouldn't be a nice thing, but um, in that way, maybe one in a thousand, you would catch this activity. Maybe the person would get to that point where they're essentially maybe, you know, something goes wrong and they, they're clinically dead and then they come back and you've got the recording. I mean, could you do something like that? Well, fortunately, we even one in a thousand, we usually don't have... Uh, patients who undergo surgery and then they die uh, or they die and come back. So this is really not a surgical patient who you would record from. It is a patient who may have a car crash that you can very difficult, you can't predict that. It is a patient who has a sudden onset heart attack and they die and they come back. So you can't predict that. It is not a patient who we operate on and these patients that are in our surgeries, they pass away and then they come back. So even one in a thousand wouldn't really be a wise thing to do uh, to to attach them to EEGs because usually this is not what you're looking for. So okay, yeah, I, I didn't know how common uh, this phenomena was in in surgical theater. I mean, I, the reason why I'm asking is I've heard several stories of people that were in surgery and something went wrong and then they you know were floating above their body and they experienced this, that, and the other, but. Um, I guess, like you said, thankfully in surgery, uh, it's, it's pretty rare for someone to uh, to have a near death experience on the table. Is yes. it more likely that they'll just, you know, pass away from complications versus um, come close and then come back? Like, what's the, what's the prevalence in your in your estimation of of this phenomena in surgery? Just to qual- uh, clarify, we are not investigating or researching any patients who are undergoing surgery. This is not the population that we're looking at. And the patient that we've had has had surgery for a brain bleed. The surgery went over, was fine. The patient recovered well. Three days after the surgery, the patient had a cardiac arrest, a heart attack. This was the reason why um, the case happened. The patient, before they had a heart attack, they've had seizures as a consequence from the injury of the brain bleed. So this had nothing to do surgery and this t- field of research are two very separate things. It, it just happened to be in a patient who's had surgery, who three days later developed seizures while we record the EEG from their brain while they have seizures, the patient has a heart attack and passes away. And it is extremely rare to get those cases. That's why it's such a rarity, but you, you can't, uh, plan to say the patient I'm doing surgery on, I'm going and recording from the brain. To my knowledge, uh, none of my colleagues are doing these because luckily surgery is very safe and we don't predict that the patient who has surgery undergoes death or near death and then comes back and we could go and record from the brain to see what happens. Well, if you were going, you know, is there any place that uh, would be most amenable to people having these experiences? So it's not, it doesn't sound like it's surgery. Yes. I know you're not directly involved in that, but where would you go looking or where do you go looking for any significant prevalence of these experiences? Do you have to just aggregately like look over huge areas and talk to tons of people to find some or how do you find them? Yeah, this is what you're bringing up is essentially the reason why it is so rare to, to get these data sets because you have a hard time predicting death, the time of death the time of a near-death experience, and you can't go and plan those things. But where would you look for them? You have essentially 
uh, a few patient populations. One is patients with terminally ill, Ill diseases. So we know they're going to pass away. Uh, they're on a palliative care unit. Uh, we stop giving them food. We stop giving them nutrition. We make them comfortable. They get medications for pain. Even there, we don't know when they exactly pass away. And it is difficult to speak to somebody or their family and say these last moments of your life that you have with your loved ones, would you be okay if I attach an EEG to your brain to see what happens when you pass away? One and two, it is not, again, a natural course of death because we have drugs in the system. We have no nutrition in the system. The patient has basically a terminal disease and is there to pass away. So that's one population. The other is the patient who has a trauma. You have a car crash, you come into the hospital, you're brought in by the ambulance, you may pass away, you may not. It is very difficult to run a trial because you can't predict who passes away and who doesn't. And even there, if you do, does this patient still have the ability to consciously perceive or not that the car crash basically shut down the ability of the brain to consciously perceive? So what kind of data are we collecting? It's not so clear. The third category is, is basically any patient who's in the hospital who may suddenly pass away. And even there, it's very hard for us to predict who is going to pass away and who's not. If you were to plan a scientific study and went to any ethical board and said, I have a one in a thousand chance, like you mentioned earlier, to attach EEGs onto patients' heads, they would never approve that because the likelihood of you catching something that you want to catch in one of a thousand, if you consider the cost and everything that you do for, for science, wouldn't be very wise to do. So we were just, we didn't plan the study. We were just lucky in that sense that we had the EEG attached to the patient's brain to know where the seizures come from. And we were totally by chance obtaining this data set. It is very hard and difficult to plan these experiments and research and get these data sets. That's why they're so rare. Do you struggle with concentration? Have you ever thought of your brain health long-term? Bomar Nutrition is revolutionizing the nootropic and cognitive health industry with sharp nootropic powder and patent-pending bright daily capsules, powered by Neurobloom. If you struggle with focusing, think of Sharp as brain food that supports concentration. Sharp works with your natural brain chemistry to provide a heightened sense of well-being that can delay cognitive decline and also increase mood. Bomar Sharp tastes amazing and comes in many different flavors, available in caffeinated and non-caffeinated versions. While Sharp is a short-term aid in cognitive health, think of Bright Daily Capsules as a way to improve overall brain health and prevent cognitive decline long-term. As we age, so does our brain. Supplementing with Bright has the potential to delay this aging process and helps your brain function optimally. Stay ahead of the curve and order yours today at bomarnutrition.com and save $5 off with code GENIUS5. Well, I mean, people donate organs, I think, with a, a good frequency. Why can't they donate this in a, in a way? You know, why, why can't they be asked beforehand? And again, it's a low prevalence, but, you know, I, I don't know, a hospice. What if you asked people and they were willing? Why would that be unethical? It's not unethical, but so A, you can ask patients you can't predict the time of death. So if you go to hospice and you attach an EEG, you may have somebody who passes away within two minutes, two hours, two days, two weeks. So you have to continuously basically record from these patients and you don't know when they're going to pass away. And like I mentioned earlier, if you have somebody 
who has two weeks of no nutrition and drugs in their system to make them calm, how is that signal that you're obtaining from the brain different from a very physiological course of death? Um, the ideal patient to answer the question that we're interested in, namely, what happens in the brain when you die? The ideal patient would be one that is healthy. We have an EEG attached to their brain. From that stage, they pass away. This is not going to happen because no healthy human being are going to say, I'm okay that you attach an EEG to my brain and I'm undergoing death. So you're always left with um, patients who either are in hospice and you have to speak with them and maybe a fraction of them says, yes, that's fine. A fraction of them says, uh, no, I want to spend the last moments with my loved ones and I don't want you to have days or hours and weeks of EEGs attached to my brain. So it it, it makes it rare. And my guess would be we're doing that and, and colleagues of mine are doing that. We're recording from patients who are in hospice. It's just very rare to get data sets where you have an acute course from alive to death and I think those patients are very different from patients who are there in hospice where they're basically receiving no nutrition, medications to make them calm. All those things can alter and change your brain signals. So I would assume that down the road, there will be several reports with very different findings because you have different patients that you're recording this from. The case that we had, the reason it was so rare was because the patient was not a patient hospice, but it, the transition from the patient talking to us to the patient passing away within 20 minutes, it's basically, that is what gives you a course of an acutely deteriorating and dying brain to see what happens there. That is very hard to plan and capture with recordings. Um, what about people that come into the hospital, into like the uh, acute trauma unit? I don't know if there's much time at all to ask anyone, but... Could that be a source of people to look at or even there? It's... I, I mentioned earlier in the interview, I mentioned that population, what's hard with them is if you have a number of patients coming through the emergency department with an acutely deteriorating disease, let's say they have a car crash and a brain bleed, some of these patients may survive, some of them may not survive. You can't ask them if they have near-death experience because once they come in, they are basically unconscious if they are in that state. It is, again, extremely rare that you have a patient who comes in and you have a functioning brain who then progresses to deteriorating to die. And right. to catch that case out of all the cases that come in, you would have to perform a lot of EEGs and a lot of patients. And Practically, it is very difficult to go in an emergent situation where you're dealing with survival and ensuring the care for the patient. Find in time, contact a family, ask them, are you okay with this? Attach the EEG to the head and then start a study. The way it normally works is that if the patient has a seizure, you attach the EEG to the brain. And if you happen to be lucky, to get recordings, that's fine. Uh, but usually you can't plan these things. It's very difficult. So how many um, lucky recordings have you gotten? One. Okay. Uh, well, that's we the can one start I, to that, talk about that a bit. So, 
what are some of the nuances or interesting things you saw from that recording? I think that's what what I had explained in the at the beginning of our conversation. Uh, I can try to repeat it again. We have had the case. So you have healthy human beings who undergo the experiences that near-death survivors explain. Those are memory flashbacks, memory recalls, out-of-body experiences, meditative states. In healthy human beings, scientists have attached EEGs to the brain, shown them, for example, memorable events in their life, and recorded the EEG from the brain to see what happens in the brain. What they found is there's a certain pattern of brain waves that occur when we see memorable events of our life. Scientists have induced cardiac arrest in rats where they recorded from their brain while they died. They have observed very similar brainwave patterns. The one novel finding of our work was that in the dying human brain, the case that we published, we have seen very similar brainwave patterns, those of the healthy humans and those that was reported in the rat. Uh, So we think that these brainwave patterns may be accountable for near-death experiences. Okay, so at least in rats, it seems to correlate that the rats are having maybe a life review when they're approaching death. But in people, we don't know yet. It's anecdotal. You can't ask a rat if they have had a life review or not. All no, you I know, have, but based on the brain activity, it seems like perhaps that's what's happening or like how strongly is that? Is it a strong assertion or a weak one or what's your thought? Well, so the s- similar brainwave patterns that are observed in the rat, we observe in the human. So we have one case in rats. There's several cases that are shown. What we have is basically correlated findings between our one case. Uh, other colleagues and researchers have provided a few cases where they record from certain areas of the brain, and they found this. Uh, colleagues from uh, Columbia University have also provided a data set where they, they looked at this, and they have a variety of findings. Uh, their cases, again, may be um, different in the sense as you don't know that patient that you're recording from, where the brain of that patient is at. So with the rat, it may be similar. You I know, I, you know, I know you have to approach this in a circumspect way. I'm just wondering, again, how close, you know, it's like tantalizing. How close can you get to, to anything that would be a, a valid assertion? I know you're not there yet, but what is it looking like to you so far? You mean a causal relationship between near death and what happens in the brain? Yeah, I mean, I, again, I know you only have one person, but you do have rats. Um, the rats can't speak to you, I understand. But... Are you getting the feeling? Does it seem like this may be what's happening in people? You know, because there's a lot of anecdotal evidence, but, you know, not much actual EEG and physical evidence. But are you thinking that this is what you're going to find? Or are you trying to say, nope, I'm not going to think of anything. I'm just going to keep collecting data and, you know, I'm not going to prejudice my results. But again, what is your, what are your suspicions so far? Well, your question can be answered in a scientific way. And there we have one case. And it doesn't matter what my suspicions are. I don't have enough data to disprove or prove it. Then there's a philosophical uh, area where we can speculate more and there my thinking may count. And there it, it looks like, you know, we have quite a few interesting things. One is the brainwave patterns in healthy humans that experience 
the experiences that near-death survivors explain. We know what that happens because we can research it. We know what happens in rats that are very healthy and they undergo death. We, so these, these two show very similar brainwave patterns. The dying human that we have shows very similar brainwave patterns to these cases. So it is intriguing for us to speculate, to say, this is what's going to happen. We uh, have these brainwave patterns happening right around the time when we die. They happen in healthy humans when they see experiences from the memorable events that they have in life. They happen in rats when rats die. So it is intriguing to say, this is what's going on when the brain undergoes death and when possibly somebody experiences near-death experiences. It's, it's, I think it's very possible on that sense. And then there's the third, there's the spiritual and religious area where we all have certain beliefs. We would like to know what happens in the brain when we die. I think it is, it is everybody's own interpretation to interpret the data that, that we provide. We say this is possible. So everybody could imagine their own way how they might die and what may happen in the brain when they die. If somebody asked me, I would say maybe I'd close my eyes for a minute and I'll think about the most memorable events in life. And that probably to me could be what happens in the final moments of my life. I guess ideally, if you had, uh, you know, a hundred brains that before they died, you had the EEG on them through death. And then you had a hundred where they, you know, they got close and then came back. That would be an amazing set of data, but it sounds like that would be incredibly hard to assemble and take a long time. A hundred brains with the EEG when patients die would be very quick to get uh, because unfortunately in the world, there's probably going to be patients dying. Uh, This is a nature of life. A hundred EEGs from a brain of patients who pass, don't pass away, but undergo near death experience and come back is, I don't know if that's as possible in three or four lifetimes of humans. Well, what about people that have passed away? Does anyone have data from, you know, again, EEG data from people that have passed in mass? Yeah. Again, I think we, we mentioned this, we touched up on this earlier. So you have the. Well, it, 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 yeah, I, I apologize for asking you again, but as we get into the interview, it just helps to get more of a context. So I know you are answering it maybe in a slightly different way, but I appreciate you uh, indulging me in this way. I'm asking because I'm interested in, it's giving more of a, of a perspective. In the beginning, for some yeah. reason, it didn't. Uh, okay. My, my brain, EEG, didn't register it 100% properly, so I apologize. Okay, no, that's okay. So so the the patient who is in the hospice in palliative unit, we can obtain an EEG from their brains. There's a patient who is in the emergency department and we can obtain an EEG from their brain. Um, and then there's a patient who abruptly passes away and we can obtain an EEG from the brain. These three patient populations will show you most likely three very different things. So if there's a patient in hospice who has terminal stage heart failure and they are taken away from nutrition, they're given medication who make them comfortable and all those things. And for several days, you are basically altering their brain function because you want to make them comfortable. I don't know how much you can compare that patient to somebody who is healthy and acutely passes away. These are probably going to give you two very different findings. 
So the challenge well, in, is in, to quick, quick question, quick question. In hospice, is the protocol the same as someone that's in the hospital that is actively dying? Do they do the same thing in hospice versus hospital? Uh, no. In hospice, you basically, the patient and the family and palliative care, they decide and say, I have a terminally ill disease. I do not want to continue treatment. So do not treat me, but help me to comfortably pass away. So these patients do not get food. They don't get water. They get medications to let them comfortably pass away. The patient who you have in a hospital acute care setting, you try everything to treat them to have them live. So if they have an infection, you give them antibiotics. Uh, If they have a brain bleed, you go and operate for them. So these are two very different patient populations that you are treating. And I would assume that their brain signals will be will be different and the findings that we may have it we we like to think that when somebody passes away the same thing happens in everybody's brain what we don't know is i think it is true that somebody passed away this happens what we don't know is when exactly does somebody pass away so if you're in hospice and the patient may not be able to speak to us because they are uh, under the effect of drugs that make them comfortable. So pain drugs, for example, morphine, it, it might dilute, interfere with their level of consciousness and how they, awake and present they are. Uh, so if key question is when does their brain start to say goodbye? Although maybe you see that breathing is ongoing, that the drugs and medications they get might interfere with their brain function earlier than the time that we consider they die. On the other hand, if you have an acutely dying patient, this is going to be very different. So you have a patient who comes to you and has a brain bleed from a car accident. The tricky part is when when do these patients' brains truly stop functioning? When do they stop consciously perceiving? It probably will be quite different from the patient who is in palliative care. So here you have a patient who has a brain bleed and we can, we can try to treat the brain bleed, but the, the key becomes when is the brain of this patient, so to say, saying goodbye and can we get them back to treat them? And what is the timing of applying the EEG to record that time of the patient says, you know, when is the right time to apply the EEG to capture the transition phase to death while the patient is consciously present? Okay, so if you look at the actual process of dying in someone in palliative care versus someone in hospital, is there any difference in how a person passes away in those two scenarios? I know this doesn't have EEG data, but what does it point to anything? Does it suggest anything? Has there been a comparison of that? No, I think that its amount of data that is present is very rare. So we don't have a, a comparison study who uh, somebody has looked at patients and palliative care versus acute patients because we technically don't even have enough of each of those two. So we first need to get enough data from each of those two arms to then possibly be able to compare the two. There's different strategies that people have done. Some uh, have recorded from only certain areas of the brain. 
that's technically easier to do. Our knowledge, only our study and another study that was recently published have recorded from the whole brain to see what happens in the entire brain when patients passed away. Uh, nobody has really com combined or compared the two sides to each other. Do you think that would be useful? Again, in looking at what happens in detailing the, the dying process in these two groups? I think the most useful data set would be to get uh, sets from patients who are acutely deteriorating and somebody who's able to speak with you and then passes away and you have a data set of the two ends to then really see what happens in the brain when somebody passes away. Okay. Well, very good. Well, Ashwell, you've been a very good sport. You know, uh, Thank you. Again, it's interesting to me. I, I, some of the nuance, that's why I had asked you a couple of times, but I appreciate you uh, explaining it again. Where's the best place for people to find out more about your work? The, the website of the University of Louisville, my Instagram page, uh, Google is always a good resource. There is now uh, so many articles that stem from this work. I think it's been featured in more than 800 articles out there. Some of them have very good summaries of, of the work. And uh, those are probably the three best places. Okay. Well, very good. Ashmal, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you very much. I appreciate uh, your, your time and interest. Do you struggle with concentration? Have you ever thought of your brain health long-term? Bomar Nutrition is revolutionizing the nootropic and cognitive health industry with sharp nootropic powder and patent-pending bright daily capsules, powered by NeuroBloom. If you struggle with focusing, think of Sharp as brain food that supports concentration. Sharp works with your natural brain chemistry to provide a heightened sense of well-being that can delay cognitive decline and also increase mood. Bomar Sharp tastes amazing and comes in many different flavors, available in caffeinated and non-caffeinated versions. While Sharp is a short-term aid in cognitive health, think of Bright Daily Capsules as a way to improve overall brain health and prevent cognitive decline long-term. As we age, so does our brain. Supplementing with Bright has the potential to delay this aging process and helps your brain function optimally. Stay ahead of the curve and order yours today at bomarnutrition.com and save $5 off with code GENIUS5. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at findinggeniuspodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.